Welcome back to my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. Here we are for the fifth series. As usual, we'll be covering all things that shape employee experience, engagement, performance, and loyalty. And that's a biggie at a time with budget cuts and the workforce feeling the pinch, including increasing pressure at work. We'll be unpicking how leaders show up and create the right culture for people to thrive. One that enables psychological safety, builds team cohesion, and nurtures mental well-being. I'm your host, Lisa. As a psychologist and a psychotherapist in my business, It's Time for Change, I get to make a real difference in the world of people. I help deal with those challenges and questions that consume headspace. So whether that's knowing how best to support people, reduce overwhelm, or develop better ways of working, I'm your soundboard, problem unpicker, and guide to doing things differently that ultimately increase employee happiness and outcomes. My mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. So let's dive in. Okay, so joining me today is the very lovely Fassi. Now I'm going to have a go at saying your surname, Espejo. Yeah, well done. Brilliant. Um, Who is a mental health champion, um, and a coach and a mentor working with innovative businesses to help them grow. Now, Plassey is also a TEDx speaker. She took to the stage um, to share her ideas about embracing mental health and the benefits of workplace policies. So welcome to my very humble in comparison podcast, Plassey. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so you are incredibly passionate about mental health. Uh, you always have been as long as I've known you. Um, and you talk openly about your own experience, along with sharing facts and advice about what makes a positive difference to people struggling. Um, now, I know that hearing some people hearing the fact that we're going to be talking about mental health today will think, oh, this is not relevant to them, um, regardless of who they are in an organisation. But with figures such as those from Deloitte last year that suggest that poor mental health costs UK employers up to £56 billion a year. It has to be everyone's business. Um, So I'm hoping that by the end of our conversation today, those people will think a little bit differently about mental health. So let's start, Plassie, by hearing more about you and your role. So what is it that keeps you busy in your your Uh, work? Okay, so apart from being a a mum, obviously, uh, um, so I've been gosh since I remember end of the 90s working with uh, companies within an innovative environment in Oxfordshire to begin with um, I moved from business incubation to private equity to tech transfer to I had a period of time which I was very lucky and I was traveling around uh, working with projects funded by the European Union where I was able to use my languages and my cheekiness and my culture and so on so that was a lot of fun and and then I moved into uh, partnership work and commercial property, and I'm currently working with a great team, uh, setting up a, a new or helping to set up because this is very early stage a pan regional partnership across the Oxford to Cambridge area, as well as I'm a volunteer mentor for a number of organisations uh, passionate about women in business, women, you know, encouraging women who are more mature women to make changes in their life and to, mm. to be more positive about what's what opportunities there are for them as mm. well. And and doing a, a little bit of work locally as well for uh, one of the local partnerships as well as 
volunteering with one of uh, the business awards and schools and so on. So I like to keep busy. You are always very busy. So there has been so much talk about mental health in the workplace in recent years. So I'd love to start by talking about why we even having to have this conversation. So why are we talking about getting leaders to take mental health seriously and getting beyond the rhetoric? I think we are having to have this conversation because people are still finding it very uncomfortable to talk about mental health. Embarrassing as well. Um, they're not comfortable um, just talking about com- company work and mental health. Um, physical health, it's it's a subject that is talked about, well-being in the workplace. For years, we've been talking about well-being. I, I remember working uh, within an organisation and we used to get fruit fresh, fresh fruit. Mm. You know, and um, they used to make us make sure that we had walks and breaks and so on. Um, so companies have focused a lot around physical health. Mm. As that kind of the, the evidence, that's the, the state of how an employee should look healthy, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but uh, we we are just a vessel and our mind is here and our mind is operating the rest of our body. And what a lot of employers and, and, our, our, and leaders are not realising is that we need to work with the mind. Mm. Um, in order to be healthy, to have a healthy mind so that our, our body and everything is linked, you know, your body is caused and everything is in sync. You have a healthy mind, what's that? You're going to have a healthy body yeah. uh, and, and vice versa. Um, but I think so that we don't spend too much time on the first question because otherwise we'll talk forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a matter of um, historically, it's not a subject leaders have had to talk about. Mm. Um, it's one that HR departments are very mindful, and I'm, I'm, I'm using very carefully chosen uh, words here about the connotations of, of, of an employee talking about mental health or being signed off or, or anything like that. Um, but it also is that kind of uncertainty of how to talk about mm. mental health from leaders because. Um, there are leaders who are of a generation who, you know, again, historically, baby boomers, um, Gen X like myself, um, a very different business environment to the business environment that is created by young millennials or, or even Gen Z. Mm. Um, so that kind of difference in, in age as well and generations is something that you have to take into, into consideration. Um, but I think, yes, fear of not knowing, uncertainty, um, not being comfortable, um, HR, you know, kind of being very cautious about Mm. it. And we just kind of have brushed it under the carpet. Mm. We didn't see it, Mm. it wasn't obvious. And I think it's an interesting one, that whole, you know, you're picking up on the generational differences. And I know I've spoken with a number of people who are on leadership boards who are assigned the task you know, got one person assigned a task for changing the kind of mental health culture within their organization. And they're like, that's fine. I get it. I, I'm really passionate about it. And I know what I want to do. But there are other people on the leadership team who are not behind it, who are just don't see the point. And so it's almost there's a different sense of um, motivation, isn't there, for, yeah. for different generations? You know, it's, there's part of it is about how 
to have the conversations, feeling confident and comfortable about that, but also even just seeing the need to have the, the conversations. And, and it's having an interest as well. So there is a number of leaders, and we're talking about leaders, but we've got senior management, we've got yeah. board members, you know, we've got non-exec directors and so on. There is there is kind of an, an interest mm. to learn more about it. So I have held different senior management positions and I've always been uh, uh, encouraged to to learn about something else and not just to kind of nurture my, my existing skills. So I was learning about... Uh, explosives or mental or health and safety and, and mm. stuff like that that I didn't really have to at one point but I wanted to mm. and it's about having an interest and how do you encourage this generation that it's very much flat how do we do it they just they're just not it's not that they're not open to changes that they're not interested mm. really. it's not what they've done for the past 40 years yeah um, the only way that I think that you could stimulate certain generations into mental health is by looking at the financial implications and the gain in revenue and how the bottom line will improve mm. and increase in order to actually stimulate certain leadership to look at the mental health uh, mechanisms that they have in place. But, you know, but should, you, should we have to do that? Shouldn't yeah. it be a, a kind of a human uh, nature thought that we want everyone yes. to be happy in the in the in the workplace by looking after the mental health? Mm. I couldn't agree more on that, and um, I hate it when people resort to the bottom line because it's like actually it should just be a kind of you're human. Yeah, um, yeah I think I think it's a I think it's an interesting dilemma that sometimes people just get a bit stuck with. Uh, it's either not my thing or it's got to be about money. And um, it's not, it's got to be about doing the right thing. And also just, you know, you, you've suggested about the whole idea of growth. You know, you've had to constantly develop depending on what role you're in. And if we look at whatever our role is, if we're a manager, a leader, we're constantly looking to grow and we're constantly reading the reports that are out there, the research that's done that shows how important different aspects of leadership are, mm -hmm. we know that actually we've got to be taking this seriously. I've got to, if this is not my area of strength, I need to develop, I need to grow. So, it, so it does become a strength of mine. So I but, think that, but that's that's almost a mindset shift, isn't it? About And some people yeah. have been in the role for such a long time, almost get a bit complacent with, I've done this, I know how to do it. I'm not, I don't need to change or grow. Yeah, and, and also time. So, you know, leaders are very limited with time. They, um, like I, uh, I've got an interest in mental health because I want to help others. Mm. And I know we talked about, we will talk about my experience, but it's, it's down to time. So, so there are some leaders, some senior managers that haven't got the time to digest and to read all the reports or to look at new policies or yeah. to look at programs. So it, they, they kind of, they put the honours in people that are reporting to, to them to actually and so we mustn't forget that leaders actually get their information from those ones who are working for them and yeah. it's how do we fit the information in in a number of figures or infographics or snapshots that is going to be able to facilitate that transfer information into an action for the company yeah. and putting in, and implementing something new for the company for the mental health well-being of the employees. And of course, we know that when people are really stretched and people are in senior positions in companies, 
actually their ability to be creative. I mean, that's, that's why I love about, you know, your role is about working with innovative companies and so on. To be creative and innovative, you've got to have the headspace. And you can't do that if you're really stressed and stretched. So actually, it, it there needs to be that sense of space created for people to have the good conversations, even if that's about infographics, you know, presenting data, having conversations with people who specialize in this or know a bit more about it, which often comes from colleagues within, you know, within their organization. So lots of people will have an interest in it. They'll have, like yourself, they have experience of it. They know about the stuff. So it's about utilizing those resources, mm-hmm. um, knowing that actually it just takes off a load of space you know it creates a little space for me and takes off a load of pressure for me to have to answer and address everything myself because that's the bit that goes out the window isn't it when our emotional arousal is high <laughs> and, and a great quality in a leader is listening yes it's it's a, a great quality that any any leader that I can name on it's one that listens and is is actually listening to those ones that are working with you and listening to the figures or, you know, making sure that you get the right information, but you are listening to what's happening around your working environment, your organization. And that listening, I mean, goodness, we can have a whole conversation around that because so many people will say to me, I do listen. And I'm thinking, "Mm, you're not, you're listening with your own agenda. You've got your own stuff you want to shove into that conversation. You're listening by saying, how are you doing? I'm fine. Great. We can move on now. You're not really listening. That's a whole skill in itself, isn't it? No, no. I'm fascinated by body language and voice because then you kind of can really understand people's behavior in, in not or a large, large percentage of people's behavior not mm. just by actually the words that are saying that's in communications uh, percentages that's this very tiny bit part of the communication body language will actually tell you a lot more about what a, someone is telling you absolutely couldn't agree more on that so whose responsibility is this mental health mm. agenda then so is it not you know our boardrooms not taking it seriously because they don't see it as their role or or quite what um if if you go back to let's just go back to health and safety for example when i was when i was responsible for health and safety Mm. one of my previous jobs health and safety will say everyone is responsible for health and safety in the working environment yeah not just the the senior management but everyone is responsible for making sure that they work in a safe environment i think everyone is responsible for making sure everyone's mental health Mm. it's is good mm. um, and and you know th- those were the days and and mental health mental health in the working environment it's something that happens within work and something that you bring <clears throat> to work you know mm. it's it's uh, it's it's kind of that presentism that maybe we'll talk about it later but I think everyone first everyone is responsible second there is there is a large proportion a, a large proportion of responsibility within health, uh, human resources, mm. because come on, they're responsible for the well-being of employees and for legally, mm. they have a, a duty of care. Um, senior management is responsible. Again, the same as health and safety policy will have a health and safety director, which normally someone represented within the, the board, you know, someone will have representation for the health and safety of that organization. Um, why can we not have a board member who's responsible for mental health 
in the workplace? Or why can we not have a board member, a non-executive director or an executive director, who's responsible for well-being of their employees, which takes on health and safety, physical, mental, spiritual? Because, you know, mm. we've also got spiritual health, which is very much in trend nowadays. And, and, and people are working very much with, within themselves with their growth agenda, mm. self-growth agenda. So everyone is responsible. HR has got a duty. Obviously, legally, they they it has to be there has to be more on um, employee handbooks. There has to be more on employee handbooks. There has to be more in the induction process, and there has to be more in those appraisals, but not in a way that is forced down someone's throat. You know, this is what it needs to happen, and this is the three point to actually having achieving this percentage for your mental health it has to be a relaxed natural organic way of of just doing it it can't be that I remember the days when I was doing up racial forms and you you didn't re, you were not honest in your mm. racial form because you just wanted to please your line manager and and then I went to a point in which I was very honest in my racial form, and I and, and I got shot down. You know, so mm. there has to be a balance, a balance in that way. So where do we find the balance within the mental health responsibility in in an organisation? I think that's a question that needs to be answered, and needs to be answered by professionals, by leaders, and and policymakers. Mm. Because I think it's interesting because you've, you've touched on a number of things there about, you know, handbooks and um, and policy and so on. So that actually needs to be more formal. Um, induction is something that is, you know, I've worked with um, a fabulous person called Anna Harrington on producing um, a mental health induction training program, uh, which is all through video. So if you've yeah. got starting a company, actually just as you as you would when you're kind of um introducing them to what your company is all about introduce to them what your how you support people and what you're expecting people to do for themselves how they have to look after themselves and, and be able to have their boundaries and so on um but also you touched on stuff around just it's everyone's business in terms of just having sensible conversations that just gen genuinely show you care just normalizing it making everyone's job to to look out for each other and we're very quick at judging people and putting labels so you know again I've worked in organizations where uh, someone in that department was saying this person is really rude or this person is really angry and, and it was a very toxic environment um and and it was like okay why is this person rude where is this person angry and and it could be that there was something totally wrong with them you know it could be that they've got issues at work but when they come at work the kind of the, the emotions turn mm. and you take that on people um so there is there is more of kind of put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're working with mm. uh, to understand why the behavior is the way that it is and then in most cases you will see there's something either wrong at home they're physically ill and they're not telling you and they're kind of you know covering or or they just put in that kind of brave face mm-hmm. um but from time to time they snap because of mental health they've got mm-hmm. mental health issues 
yeah, I mean, our buckets are only, only have a certain capacity. <laughs> so when your emotional arousal gets too high, it doesn't matter uh, how how great you're trying to be in terms of keeping the lid on. You can take the sm- smallest thing and it's just, it's gone, hasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And, of, and of course we have, you know, some organisations, we haven't really talked much about mental health first aiders, have, have people in specific roles. And it's very easy then to assume that they take responsibility. But of course how active are they you know are people using them what um difference they're actually making and also a lot of these mental health first aiders have to do this on top of their day job so how are they being looked after like where's their you know the capacity um kind of alarm bells you know when they're having to to deal with a lot of extra stuff on top of their normal workload um so i think it's there's a it's a it's a big complex pattern and it's about joining up all the dots and, and I mean, it will be an interesting one to actually find out in terms of because mental health first aiding um, has only been trained, trained, you know, for, for the past three, four, five years. Last mm. year is kind of took more of a trained and there's a number of organizations that go out and offer different packages and, you know, uh, private and charities and so on. But I don't I don't think there is a lot that we can learn from it yet. I know on the um on that Deloitte report that you were mentioning before that I think there's statistics six that only six percent of the people that um were involved in the report used mental health programs at work only six percent so there is a reason why only six percent are using those programs um and as 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 wonderful as it is to have mental health first ages in the workplace um you have to be a very strong a very desperate person at the very end of the road, like I was at one point, to actually be able to go and knock on someone's door and a mental health first aid that. But is it that person that you're used to working? Is it yeah. that do they work for HR? Are they the right person? Are they within your team? Do you actually trust them? Uh, do you like them? Exactly, rapport. Like yes. them. You know, it's there is so much to do with being able to relate to that mental health, mental mm. health first aider mm. um, that I think is great to say we're doing mental health uh, mental health first aid in the workplace is an option it's a tick box as well is it, it how, how many people are using them that's what I would really like to mm. understand and I, and I think that the figures will be quite shocking if anything um, yeah and I think that's why it goes back to you know they are a part of your provision if you have them but they are just a small part of the big picture because it's the people who you're in contact with every day who might notice the changes in your behavior or might notice the you snapping more or whatever who is the people you have rapport with who you have the relationships with who when someone says are you all right you don't look yourself today or um you seem a bit tired or whatever it might be um, they're more likely to open up rather than, as you say, going and finding someone and having to knock on the door and make an appointment and so on. It's the, it's yeah. the informal kind of much more regular opportunities that these things are likely to come up. And then someone, if they need to, can signpost on to a yeah. mental health first aid or whoever. Exactly. And for me, it was that for me is eventually I got help from someone that I trusted and I was very closely working and she became a friend. Um but I suffered in silence for years. So let's so on that. Let's let's hear your story, Plassie, because I know <laughs> we all get the violin and we get. And I'm just thinking because also the thing I think that's really powerful about your story is um, 
because there are lots of people who, who share their stories about their own experience um and it's almost like an offload of sort of sharing you're very good at drawing from your experience actually what needs to change and why and how it's the kind of the practical okay we can learn from this yes I'd love people to hear what it is that has driven you to to have such a passionate desire to make a real really really important change in the mental health world in, in I, think, I think it's giving people hope that you you can function as a normal adult and there's nothing wrong with you because for years I felt that there was something wrong with me. So, so if we rewind mental health and, and I have got this kind of love-hate relationship since I was in my teens. If, and, and, and a lot of people who um, know me within a working environment was very surprised to, to even know that I was doing a TEDx talk about mental health. And then when they watched the TEDx talk, actually the, the, the messages were very much, oh, I don't know what to say, you know, just like, like you don't need to say anything yeah. bless you you know it's fine yeah. it's fine because they still think oh gosh poor you but I don't I don't feel people to I don't want people to feel sorry for me I want people to actually like you said um take from my experience and put it into something positive so that people understand you can function as an adult and this is part of your life and you're not ruled by your mental health so so I started uh years and years ago when I was a teenager having an eating disorder uh, which took over my life for about 10 years and it, and it was just a trigger of a low self-esteem um, no confidence uh, body image issues and thank god social media wasn't you know didn't exist in the 80s because even with without social media I was I was in trouble and you um, know what I don't know if you've seen recently on LinkedIn the dove campaign yes, yes. and that, I saw it and actually I was in tears and I was in tears because I did a I, I did um something for beat which is eating disorders UK organization uh with one of the DAF campaigns with one of my friends who we were running a self-help group in Oxford years ago and we went around the schools to talk about body image um and DAF this is program and you know and you will say to kids uh, bring a picture of uh, what you, what you think is beautiful, and they will bring pictures of um, celebrities, mm. whereas I will bring a picture of a, of a sunset or you know the moon or something like that. So, but I was that child. I was that teenager where I thought beauty was being um, attractive and being popular and um, looking good. Mm. and 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 so on and it was it was driven by the the culture you know my mom thought I was going to be obese forever so she bless her she put me on I say bless her so I, I she put me on a diet I wasn't losing weight it was a vicious circle yeah, that is yeah. spiraling to you know into a, a bulimia and binge eating and comfort eating for 10 years and it was and it was a point there was a, a point where I got really scared of what I was doing to my body because, um, and, and we won't talk a lot about eating disorders because they're a completely different podcast. Um, but when you, but your body starts shutting down when you yeah. suffer bulimia um, because you can't see and people can't see what you're doing to yourself. And mentally you're getting worse and worse and worse and your inner, inner voice is taking over to a point that takes over the whole thing. Um, I was lucky enough that a friend of mine saw the signs 
um, and sat me down and said, I love you so much, what can I do to help you? And it was that, what can I do to help you that actually went, I need help and I'm ready for, but I was ready to accept help. Um, I had two years of counseling, learning to eat, nutrition advice and so on. And I, I found out what the trigger was and I went back to sort out that trigger. And 25 years later, um, I'm, I'm here talking to you about the fact that I love my food and food doesn't ruin my life. And it's great to be able to, to go for a dinner and not have to worry about food. But so the, what I like to say is there, anyone with an eating disorder, you can, you can have a full life and yeah. it's just a matter of having the right way of um, getting over it and, and support and so on. Mm. Uh, fast forward to my 30s, um, I was in an excellent place work-wise. Um, I just became a new mum and I, uh, looking back, I realised that I suffered from postnatal depression that was never diagnosed. Um, it was never diagnosed, it got worse and worse. Um, marriage, you know, broke down. I started to get really um, anxious about things and nervous and unhappy and cry and I was I was depressed. And I suffered like that in silence, no one knew. So if you, you know, and this is why a lot of people are very surprised because if you ask me, how are you? The smile mm. automatically comes, mm. it's just I can't help it, I smile. So people didn't see past that mm. at all. Um, I went to the doctors with a, I think it was a bad tummy or something along those lines. And the doctor said, so how are you? And at that moment, I broke down in tears. And, and if you know that if you are a little bit emotional, um, the moment someone asks you and they mean it, how are you? You just go, oh my God, I can't cope. Um, so we, we kind of dig deeper and found out that I was severely depressed. Um, I took anti, you know, I was, I was prescribed um, antidepressants. I went through counseling. I had to sort myself out and talk to someone about it at work. And I only confide in one person, one person. Out of all the hundreds of people, it wasn't my line manager, it wasn't HR. This, and, you know, I'm not going to say they were wrong. I'm just going to say I didn't feel comfortable to talk about it. Mm. And I felt really embarrassed and that I had let my family down, my ex-husband my son and so on so at one point I was I was planning to to not being in this world anymore and I had everything planned um and it's a very dark place that you are when you have when you get to that point but it's a place where you just can't cope anymore you know and and what's interesting is that during the period that I was depressed and I was I was taking antidepressants and so on I never went back to my eating disorder mm. and I never went back to my eating disorder because I always thought I'm not going to dark place anymore but I was in such a dark place <laughs> that mm. I thought it wasn't as bad as being yeah. in that eating disorder period um so it was it was you know that kind of beginning of the 2010s was a really tough couple of years for me to kind of Go through counseling understand what what the depression was why i was in that bad place but also the fact that for five years i didn't talk to anyone about it mm. at all 
And what I don't want people to do is carry on being in silence, um, completely eating themselves out and suffering and crying and not being able to talk to people about the fact that they are feeling sad or angry or that they've got these thoughts and they don't know where they're from or that they have anxiety mm. and, and they don't know what triggers it. Um, and, and I like people to understand that you can manage it and there's tools and there is ways in which you can do it and there is help out there. And I think that's very important because when I finally seeked help, it was all very accidental just by going to the GP. Uh, it was this weight that just lifted mm. off, you know, and I kind of had a mission that I knew what was, it was, I was depressed. I had depression. I had to get better. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna end my life if I'm allowed to say that um yeah that's that was the past so in order to move on I needed to find a purpose and a reason to to carry on and I needed to find ways of managing it and I needed to turn the the inner voice down and I needed to convert negatives into positives and I needed to understand why the emotions were there and sit with them and and talk about it talk was key and and now I probably talk too much. I was told by someone one day that I was too open about my mental health. Wow. It, that's an interesting comment. Was that from someone who felt uncomfortable about talking about it themselves? I think it was just kind of still people find it very uncomfortable to talk about things like that. And men particularly find it very uncomfortable to talk about that. So you can't be, you know, I think women, women's networks and women in business yeah. and so on, we tend to be a lot more supportive and understanding of where we are in life, what, what help we need, what we don't help, what we're capable of doing, because mm. we're super women, really. Mm. Um, but I think men still find it very uncomfortable to talk about certain things and 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 this was it was quite an interesting comment but you know what I think that's really hit the nail on the head for the reason so many people avoid conversations because mm. they just find them uncomfortable but actually it's the very reason we need to be having these conversations so that it does because you know the first time it feels uncomfortable the next time it still feels a bit uncomfortable but I've heard this before the next time it still feels uncomfortable but I'm okay with it you know it and there's that period of change but yeah. you've got to start from for some people, would we'll be starting from a place of real discomfort. And, and I think you have to start with being honest when people say, how how are you? Mm. You know, yes. we, we live in an environment where we go, how are you? And, and it's just very much just politeness mm. brushing up. Be interested. If you ask how someone is, be interested in how they are. If not, don't ask. I just literally, before we uh, hit record today, I was having a, a meeting with um, a manager and we start off the conversation, um, you know, so hi, how are you? And great, thanks. Okay, so I said, so stop, how are you really? And just looked at me and I was just like, right, so I know what's been going on yeah. in your organization recently. I know the toll it's taking on you. So how yeah. are you really? And then the conversation starts. But, exactly. it, but it, as you say, it's just too easy to say, how are you? Because that's kind of, that's what we do, isn't it? We just do, how, how are you? Now let's go on to the real business. The real business is actually how that person is in that moment. You made it a safe place for them to, to communicate that with you. And I think it's also very important to make it that safe, to make a safe place for people to be able to talk about that. Mm. 
Um, and I've learned from my mistakes of not talking about how I feel, but now I, I talk about how I feel. So for example, if I have a bad day or if I'm feeling anxious or um, a couple of weeks ago, I went for a coffee with a friend and she said, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm really angry at the moment. Mm. And she didn't know how to take it, but I just, I had been feeling really angry for a number of reasons. And I had to tell someone I'm really angry and, mm. and, and I need to let it out. So is that kind of, sit with your emotions if you're angry you're angry why why is this anger taking over you understand where it's coming from and let it go because otherwise it's never going to take off and, and leave you <laughs> and I think also a really important point there is and this is an assumption on my part I'm guessing when you're saying to your friend I'm really angry you're not saying that expecting her to solve all your anger issues no you're naming your 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 emotion in that moment and I think a lot of people again will worry about asking how are you because what if someone says x y z well let them say it doesn't mean you've got to sort yeah. it well out for them you're not suddenly becoming a therapist and this is something that happens when you talk about mental health and if you've you know like myself you've been at that kind of very dark point in life is that people don't when you say to someone this is how I feel. Oh, they just instantly think, oh my God, is she gonna is she gonna do that? Is she yeah. planning? Is she yeah. is it what what's happening? And then they just start getting really jumpy around it. Whereas, no, 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 it's okay. I've got my tools, I've got my mechanisms, it's okay. One of them is being honest with you and tells you how I feel mm. because it works both ways. I want you mm. to tell me how you're doing as well. Mm. Um so honesty, honesty within a safe place is very important. And I think it really highlights the point you're making, Plassi, about um, the importance of it is everyone's business because for someone to notice, you know, the person who noticed you and said, I love you so much, what can I do to help you? It's because they know you and it's got yeah. to be, that's why the relationships, I'm always banging on about how important relationships are at work and that's the thing to focus on first and foremost before you try and do anything else within your team because if you know each other and you're looking out for each other and you can trust each other and you can talk openly with each other then you are you're onto a good thing because then people can just be honest it goes you know it's the whole psychological safety area but just the really just the basics of just being able to have that space and communicate freely which is not going and finding some specialist or someone with a particular role in your organization it's the people I'm in contact with every day. No, and and but there is this misunderstanding that people say, no, you, you know, you your family, you you go to work and they're your family, and and, and there's two issues with that. Yeah. One is your family is your family, you know, you and and there is issues within your family. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing that you want to do is associate your family with work as well, because yeah. you might yeah. not want to do that. But the other one is. Your family is your home life, your upbringing, those ones that you consider, you know, as your safety net within your personal environment. At work, you could say your your work family if you want to, but they're not your family. They are part of a team. I like to call it a team. And if you have a strong team where you trust each other, where you're able to talk to each mm. other, where communication is free on a daily basis, mm. you know, you can talk about anything within boundaries, mm. um, then then you build that trust. Because what happens is that what happened to me, I used to, I, I went to work for years and I wasn't engaged. I mm. was present, you know, and again, we go back to the Deloitte uh, report where I think 
it was saying that over 50% of people going to to um, work who um, are suffering, oh, I, I hate the word suffering. Yeah. Suffering, broken, yeah. or anything like that, you know, yeah. that are experiencing, that are experiencing uh, presentism are, is due to the mental health um, and, and the cost of presentism in their workplace is four times more than the cost of absenteeism for, for organizations. So, you know, we've talked about absenteeism, we've talked about, um, about other things to do with mental health, but we don't talk about presentism. Is that kind of quiet quitting that a lot of people are talking about mm -hmm. it. So you go to work, regardless whether you, you're sick, you're not sick, you, if you are sick, you tend to go to work. Mm -hmm. half, more than half of us will, would do it. I, I think with, with COVID, things have changed a little bit. So we're more kind of mindful of being at home. Mm -hmm. And we don't go to the workplace um, anymore, which actually has got negative connotations as mm -hmm. well. But presentism for me, it was, I went to work, I tried to do my job. I didn't do it 100%, let's be honest, but I tried very mm. hard, but I wasn't engaged. Mm. I was a robot and I, and I became a robot. And then, and then I was coming home and I was unhappy. And, and at one point you just detach yourself from everything. You don't have any emotions. You just constantly operate uh, and go through the emotions and go through life without having any reward, without having any purpose, without having any engagement or any real connections. And that is a really bad place, but really dangerous place to be. And over probably over half of the of the workplace could, could be pre in, in presentism mode mm. nowadays. Uh, because they go to work because they want a salary at the end of the day or because they want their stability of the job. Yeah. Or because they feel they have to, they haven't got any other choice, and they're not. I guess it's about knowing, like unpicking, identifying those people, isn't it? And sometimes that'll be about the competence uh, of the managers. Sometimes I'll be using tools. I'm a great fan of um, a company called Coefficient, and another one called Your Flock, and um, so there are lots of really good good measures around actually what. I think is really important in terms of that sense of meaning and purpose and connection and feeling um, able to be myself. Um, but what if a, an, a line manager doesn't feel confident or doesn't isn't competent in terms of looking out for their teams? Because often they're, they're not measured, are they? Most companies don't measure <laughs> managers in terms of their competence of looking after their people in terms of being people yeah and i think that that, that there is a point that within the training of line managers and managers that have to be trained training and this might sound a little bit wacky but you know you you have to start training people in being empathetic absolutely um, and and line managers are not really trained be, to, to be empathetic uh they're, they're trained to to follow laws, to do appraisals, to look at uh, what, what you know financials, to look at a business plan, to follow a business plan, sales and marketing. The targets are outrageous. Mm -hmm. They're so you know hard to achieve sometimes. That's all that managers are looking for: mm. hitting targets because they have to. 
um, managers are not really looking, uh, and I'm, I'm, I mean, there are good managers, let's just say that there are good managers and there are more companies that are putting training in place for managers to look at their employees um, in the human context, you know, the, the, the human capital mm. that, that, that they are. But historically, uh, managers have been trying from trained for many things, but not on being empathetic or emotional intelligence either. Massive or, gap. Yeah, or generation training. I'm a huge advocate for understanding how different generations work. Mm. So if you're a baby boomer running a department with mostly Gen Zs, understand how Gen Zs operate because they're not going to be operating like you are. But equally, you need to let them know how your your mindset is, where you stand. Um, and, and, and I think that will be that will be much in favor of organizations. I, I like that. It reminds me of a conversation I had yesterday with a client who, uh, a chap in his early 20s, who turned around to me and um, I was explaining something about uh, his, he's got a certain perception of stuff in the world and I was explaining a different view. And he said, yeah, but that's very much the view of your generation. And I was like, yeah, you're right, actually. And it, But it was a great conversation to have. And I'm, and I'm a real fan of, you know, team meetings. And I know this is always a challenge because time is so precious. Yeah. But having a space in, in team meetings where we just discuss something that is really relevant to all of us, but is not what we would normally associate with our day-to-day jobs. So having that conversation about generational differences or having yeah. a conversation about how do we um, show empathy and actually where is where are our boundaries to make sure that we're not too compassionate towards other people and we're looking after ourselves. And yeah. there's so much debate. There are no right or wrong answers there's no sort of textbook way of doing it but just having the conversation and making people more aware even if it's just that there are 10 people in this room there are 10 different ways of thinking about empathy or thinking about yeah. generational differences or you know it's just about having the conversations yeah and, and understanding that managers need to I mean no for managers to understand that they they can actually talk to someone and say have you taken your days leave you know um so for example, you know, I, I had COVID last year and the first thing that my manager said is, you shouldn't be in this meeting, you should be resting. And I was like, no, but I don't have the symptoms. It's okay. You know, so I was trying, but he was very empathetic. He was saying, don't be here if you can't, you know, don't feel, don't feel obliged. Mm. It's that kind of don't feel obliged that we, our generation, Gen X, mm. we felt obliged to do so much, mm. so, so much, because this is how we got raised. You know, this is what our parents did. And is that obligation that you had to do things that millennials started to shake off a little bit. And Gen Z are like, and, and I love that. I love that attitude, you know. It's not yeah. my obligation. So why should I do it? So in terms of policy, and I know, you know, when you, you talked a bit about policy when you're in your TEDx um, talk. So some companies will, um, you know, lots of companies will say they have a policy how specific it is whether it's just on mental health whether it's part of health and safety or part of the people strategy and it's lost somewhere in, in the yeah. footnote of something else do do you think that do you see that companies policies are making a real difference like are they are they just something that is a policy or are they actually driving real change um the the issue is are they able financially to drive real change as well so 
large companies have got their financial resources to be able to put things in place. It's, it's, it's great to write a policy, but if you're not going to implement it, what's the point, you know? Yeah. So if you have a health and safety policy, but you don't have your fire extinguishers up to date or, or you haven't got your certificates up to date on the world war, what's the point? So you're not doing, you're not really doing that well. So with with policies, there there are so many different examples, and I've read many books about mental health work and examples of really good initiatives by large organisations and by very small organisations, which are very new early startups. And those early startups put mental health and well-being let's just say well-being because it's yeah. less kind of you know yes i agree well-being, yeah. well-being in the in the in the workplace well-being is part of the core part of the dna so you've got the startups the younger companies who it's who are taking it as part of the dna and then you've got the large corporates who are doing it for the reasons they're able they care whatever it is mm-hmm. and then you get the middle ones and those middle ones having got an understanding that they need to do something about well-being which includes mental health they don't they don't know where to start mm. and what the requirements is and if there is no legal requirement should they bother which mm. is like what happens you know they'll have a health and safety uh, policy because they have to mm. and that's, that's not what happens we we all know that um and, and legally they have to. So why don't we make well-being in the workplace a must with um, policies that need to be implemented, with minimum requirements that need to be done, not because everyone is going to change overnight, but because we can start the conversation going. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change within a year. It's probably going to take us 20, 30, 40 years. You know, these things evolve. But if we can start the conversation by saying to companies, you need to implement mm. this. This is a requirement within your organizations. You know, this is what the government is asking you. The, this is employment law. Then the conversation will start. Mm. And then some people might feel comfortable or safe to talk about the mental health. And that's the only way in which a lot of a lot of people are going to be able to talk about mental health if the conversation starts and the conversation will only start if certain mechanisms are in place. And it might be a real motivator for those leaders, you know, talking about the bottom line and money, actually, if they're, if they're under threat of being sued because, you know, yeah. and, I, and and Roy Magara, who... Um, love him. Who loves, yeah. And he talks a lot about mental health and he's really passionate about it. But just imagine how busy people like him would be. This was like, if we're stuck with legal. Exactly. But if if uh, there is a key message here from uh, all the reports that have been done that any employer can find online, it is proven that by one pound that you invest on your employees' mental health, the return is that of five pounds yes. or more. Yes. So if you are driven by the bottom line, think about that five five time return on your mm. investment. Mm. If nothing else is going to instigate this change, mm. just think about that. But it should be more than just financial reward and the bottom line, it should be, you know. And, and, and of course, because like HR, you know, you mentioned HR earlier. Um, and for them, talking about mental health more might, it's almost like opening a can of worms. Like suddenly everyone's going to say, oh, I need loads of time off. And it's that, 
real fear about what's going to happen if we start um, bringing ourselves up to the surface. But my response to that is like, this stuff's already going on. It's just below the surface yeah. and it just hasn't been verbalized. The, it's still impacting on performance when people are at work, whether it's um, they're just not performing as well, you know, presenteeism, presenteeism you've already mentioned that. Um, whether it's about actually going off sick, whether it's about they're just walking out and you've got the cost of um, sort of that turnover, staff turnover, it's still impacting on you. You just don't know about it or you don't know about it as clearly or the reasons why. So, you know, hey, uh, people who are kind of fearful of actually talking about it because it could mean or have us all sorts of ramifications for your company, you're experiencing those ramifications anyway. You're just not. Yeah. Why? And why are you not accountable for this? You know, we we are really, you're accountable for other things. Why are you not accountable for this? But I mean, I, I feel my heart goes out to HR departments because, you know, they're in a really difficult position and they try very hard. And it, ultimately they report to board levels, you know, at, at the end of the day, they kind of get caught. Um, and the moment that someone says, um, here's my sick note, they just go, like you said, kind of warms, alarm bells, yeah. what's happening. And they just start, in most cases, they start getting really alarmed and worried and what's happening yeah. and so on. And then they just have to go back to legal issues and, and they start reading about mental health and and so on. And and for them, it's like fear, you know, yeah. fear. They're scared of having to go there. Um, but if it was something that was done on a daily basis, that you know that it was a daily routine that everyone talked about mental health and and everyone felt oh safe to do though then it wouldn't be such a big green eye monster that exactly they talk about yeah and and you know a company I'm working with at the moment have got some struggles within their team someone's just gone off uh, on sick leave um due to stress and so on and actually when we can you know we're having all sorts of sessions of going in and actually identifying what the pressure points are and as soon as you understand what the pressure points are and what needs to change you can start to look at the processes and systems and how, just how we do things here what our culture is yeah. like you can start to change that but unless you have those conversations you you don't know and you and the, the, it just carries on as an ongoing cycle and, and also there is this idea that um well-being in the workplace is a really expensive um process to put in place and it's not no, that expensive no. either you know it's going to be more expensive if you have to to actually take take that that employee mental health all that way down the road exactly um so you will save money and you will save time and resources yeah. and again you know productivity the, the return the lack of absenteeism mm. but the kind of the the kind of reduce of presentism as well mm. all of that are contributing factors to mm. to encourage companies to put well-being policies in the workplace and i think for me the real value of you know saying that it doesn't cost as much to actually get the right support in place whatever that looks like for me it's really important that people start with what's already going on in their organization so like you said asking people really listening and when we start asking and finding out what the current situation is we can start addressing some of that stuff we don't have to buy in expensive programs from outside or start having extra layers of complexity it's about stripping back to what's going on right now and so much of what people find really stressful and really overwhelming is stuff that actually companies have within their control to change they just don't know about it 
no, really important. So before we um, draw this to a close, I would love to hear from you, Lassie, some of your strategies that you have found to be really beneficial in terms of you looking after your mental health in a work context as well. So knowing that so many people are going to work and they are carrying with them whatever's going on for them emotionally, how do people look after themselves more, regardless of what organisation they're in? So um, for me, it was I had a kind of a light bulb uh, moment a few years ago, um, which I talk more about in the TEDx talk. But it was a realization that I had been building up uh, a mental health toolbox to deal with the pressure and the stress and the emotional and and the toll that it was that life um, was was taking on my mental health. And it was it was a moment in which I sat down and I wrote them down. I literally wrote them down because I wanted to put them on paper. Uh, and some of them are used in um, well-being programs in the workplace, and some of them are not used at all. And I think what I'm really what I'm really passionate about, and, and this this is something that frustrates me to a level, is that I see a lot of um, I see a lot of um, uh, people talking about the mental health and and how how they're suffering and I just wish that I could actually talk to them and say but you've got the tools within you we just need to help you find your own tools and then here are the tools that are that have been working for me but you can work on your own so so for me I have seven seven to eight tools that I take out out of the hat possibly on a daily basis to to help me cope with being a single mom a working single mom with you know all the extracurricular activities that I do but also with loneliness I, I deal with loneliness um, a lot which I embrace now I embrace my time and I make a happy a happy thing out of it whereas before I was I was just dwelling on being single and miserable because I was single but now I actually have got time and this is key so my my tools go from understanding what day you're on you know I wake up in the morning and I go today is a sad day Mm. I need to understand I've got a sad day today I don't know why it might be you know whatever it is less I need to be gentle with myself so checking in with myself and that takes years to understand actually that takes that takes a lot of um practice to to talk to to say to yourself okay today we've got a sad day we've got an angry day we've got a blue day what we're going to do about it Mm. um so I sit with those emotions I sit with my day I sit with the emotions I practice a lot of mindfulness and meditation meditation has been key for me for for the past few years and sitting letting all those emotions and there's different techniques you could imagine you're in the cinema and they're on your screen or you could imagine whatever it is Mm. and I let those emotions go and then I'm able to move on but again you need practice you need patience Mm. you need and you need discipline if you want things to change you need to be disciplined and discipline is hard (laughs) yeah it is very hard but I would say, I mean, there is there is more. There is managing and silencing your inner critic. There is being able to ask for help, um, having a purpose, having a reason, having that kind of direction. What, what's my purpose? For me, the purpose that 
kept me alive was my son. Mm. You know, it was just I was a mum. I wasn't gonna leave him on on his own. Mm. I was, it wasn't gonna be my legacy to him. So what's my legacy now? My legacy now is probably trying to do more about mental health and people understand that they're able to manage their own mental health and create their own tools. Um, there there is um, I have a, a great technique. So if you for for example, so mindfulness is one of them. Mindfulness in a in a in a way. I get up. I have a routine. I write a journal. I write down. I have a vision board. I do my meditation and so on. Mindfulness have got me to the point in which I am at peace because I was very conflicted. Mm. I I had this constant fight inside my head, and the constant fight it was this this voice telling me I was I was uh, a failure. And, and I wasn't good enough. And these poor little boys going, no, no, no. Um, so mm. that inner critics and, and the way that I explain it is you imagine you have, and I show my little mental health. Uh, oh, tool. I love it. <laughs> For those of you who can't see, Plus has just held up a lovely little box. <laughs> so this is the smallest toolbox that you can find that I can find on Amazon. And you open your, your uh, try to make sure that I'm here, um, your toolbox and you have three three tools here and and for me is work on three tools to begin with so mine is what's my day what kind of day do I have check in with yourself the other one is okay the emotions are x y and z let's sit with those emotions and let them go either by meditating breathing walk take the dog out whatever it is but for me, which was that one that was really critical during my bulimia, it was silencing my inner voice. My inner voice was a, it was a beast. Mm. And it took over for years for years and years. And when I was depressed, it was taking over and taking over and taking over and taking me to a very dark place. Mm. So three, three things that you can do to, to silence your inner voice. You can give it a name. Um, and a lot of people give them these horrible names. Just give it a nice, easy name. So my my inner voice is called Neil, and 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 when I think that critical voice is getting a little out of hand, then I kind of tell Neil to disappear. You know, mm -hmm. in a very swearing because mm -hmm. I swear a lot, um, and I just tell him he's not he's not he's not he's not welcome. He's not helping me you know, Neil go. And by calling it a simple, ordinary name, you're not scared of that inner voice. But if you give it a, a massive green eye monster name, then it kind of creates that fearful yeah. um, connection with it. So, um, so then the other thing that I do is if my inner voice is still very present, if I still feel, you know, that confidence is not good, that my self-esteem is not good and so on, then I will sit with my inner voice. And this is something that um, uh, someone recommended me to do. I will actually say, what is bothering you? What is it? Mm. We are going to be okay. I know you're scared. I know you're worried about, you know, I, I kind of was self-employed at one point in the summer. And, and it was that I know we're worried about getting work, but we're going to get work and so on. So it's nurturing your inner voice. It's, it's kind of working towards making it less scary, making it a fluffy mm. toy instead of a green eye monster. 
And the third thing is sometimes I stop impromptu and I will sit down for five minutes with my inner voice. And I know this sounds a bit weird, but I will just go five minutes. I'm giving you five minutes. What is bothering you? What what is it? What are you trying to tell me? You know, let it out. Again, it's it's about being able to release everything that we're bottling in because for years I bottle things out and bottle and bottle and I was a complete shadow of myself. I wasn't the person that I wanted to be. I wasn't the person that I was meant to be. And and I think we all deserve to be the people that we're meant to be and we owe it to ourselves to be the best version of what, what we can be. So three, three small tools for your mental health toolbox. Um, checking, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand with self-care, prioritizing yourself and so on. Learn to understand your emotions, let them in, let them check in, like in a hotel or a B&B, and then breathe them out through a breathing technique and acknowledge them, and then being able to silence and manage that inner, mm. inner voice is key. So if you can, if you can have a tiny uh, toolbox and have those three tools to begin with, and there's different techniques in which I could help you um, get to plan those ones. But those ones from a personal level, for, for mm. a corporate level, there is other things that can be done. I like what you describe about your three tools, because I think for me, it, um, I talk about those sorts of things a lot when I wear my psychotherapy hat with people, it's about using your observing self. And as soon as you can create a little bit of distance between you and your inner critic, or you and that particular emotion, it makes it easier to address it and to do something with it. Either whether you're choosing to sit with it for a bit or you're choosing to shut it away for the next half an hour or you know, until you're half an hour later where you are going to sit with it, it gives you a lot more control. And I think that's the control bit is the bit that's really important when people are feeling overwhelmed because they feel they have no control. Yes, and, and I mean, for anyone that understands eating disorders, bulimia is very much about not having control. You know, I had no control over my life. At one point it was my parents, then it was something else. So, and then when, when I had my postnatal depression, I had no control over my life, it was out of hand. So for years, what I've done is get back into controlling my life. I'm, I'm still very sporadic, you know, I'm not, I don't have everything, I'm not like that but I know where I am, I know where my house is, I know, you know, and, but I'm still up into changes, and, mm -hmm. and if there are changes, I know how to manage them, so they don't affect my mental health, that's the difference. And so what would be my final um, question for you today, Plassi, well, plus my blind question I'm going to ask you in a minute, but um, my final question to do on this, on this topic um, is what can organizations do then differently so what would be your advice for people who are perhaps managers leaders to take away in terms of what they can be doing to shift this agenda okay so I mean the obvious is read lots of reports check websites and so on if you haven't got the time get someone to do it like we we talked about the Lloyd Mind is a great website there is so many organizations for the construction industry mates uh, mates um mates minds mates of work uh -huh. I can't remember now um so there is loads of them but key for the day-to-day -day basis 
there seems like a check-in every day for everyone, you know, and you and you can do it with, um, I think we've, we've mentioned before, this octopus thing that was very popular on social media um, with youngsters, where's youngsters, I sound so <laughs> younger generation, um, in which you're, you turn it uh, in, inside out if you fail blue or if you fail purple, um, and that, that saved saved you the hassle or the embarrassment of talking about how you feel because some people are not able to talk about how they feel like I wasn't I wasn't able to talk about how I felt it was you know it was something that I didn't do so having something that you can actually put on your desk that says today's blue today's purple whatever and everyone doing it including the leaders yes but there is no discrimination so everyone buys into into this this conversation Having libraries, having uh, resources where employees can go in an anonymous way as well, you know, where they can pick up. Um, there, I know some managers that actually have got books for mental health at work and so on, and they highlight things that they think is very important as a kind of a cue for the people who are going to be borrowing the book that that's very important that they mustn't forget about doing that. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, in the in the training, in the induction, make it a normal thing. You know, this is this is your key. This is your security pass. This is your mental health mm. tool. This is what you use on a daily basis. This is your directory. This is blah blah blah. And this is where, and make it as a daily normal conversation, mm. natural thing. Because what they need to understand is. We talk about our physical health we need to talk about mental health mm. and that's where we that's where we fall we fall down in that kind of mm. we talk about physical health we talk about medical insurance you know in the workplace you're entitled to medical insurance but not many people will say you're you're entitled to medical insurance because you can have therapy mm. yeah it will be just in case you have you know a, a, an operation but no that medical insurance also for your mental health mm. Um, so that's that's the other one. And then I think um, some reports have been talking about um, something like over 30% of employees will actually go down the route of using apps. So there is great apps. There is um, Calm is brilliant. Um, the Happy Place, Friend Cotton has got a great app um, as well. So there's loads of different apps that you can use. You can do it at home. You don't have to involve anyone. It, it, you get anything from guided meditation to to music to recommendations of what you can read and and so on. So, but I think encourage everyone to have mental health tools. Mm. Uh, I I don't know whether you saw this. I think it was last year during mental health awareness. Um, uh, it was it was. Um, the Prince of Wales and and his wife, um, Catherine, yeah. um, they went to BBC Radio, I can't remember which one it was, and they were talking about, you know, because they're a big advocates yes. to mental health. And I remember um, uh, Catherine, Princess of Wales, asking one of the guys, what tools do you have? Mm. And, and we don't ask enough, what tools mm. do you have for your mental health? We will talk about what's your diet, how many times do you go to the gym, 
you know, uh, uh, what exercise classes do you go? Are you a Pilates or are you a yoga person? But mm -hmm. we don't talk about what tools you have for your mm -hmm. mental health. So I think having a list of tools that your employee can have and ask them, pick three. Mm -hmm. And let us know how you get on with those ones. And if you've got anything that you want to add to contribute, that would be brilliant. I mean, leaders, leaders could have someone representing or um, taking over the well-being, again, well-being um, of their workforce at board level. And that's their responsibility. That would be great. Mm. And they could, they could actually also have their own tools that they can share with their employees. Because let's face it, leaders, leaders also suffer a lot with mental health because they have a lot of pressures. They just yeah. don't talk about it. And yeah. again, it's a completely different podcast. Um, so that's kind of mindfulness. Mindfulness has been key. There is a strong link between mindfulness and mental and, and physical well-being. Mm -hmm. So can we encourage more organizations to push for mindfulness in the workplace? And the key for mindfulness is being present mm. in that moment, mm. learning how to be present. So if you can actually work on that one, you will be reducing presentism. Mm. There's a huge link there. You that. mentioned so many different strategies and actually Sorry, I get carried away. No, no, no. I've been scribbling down um things we need to put. I've put in the show notes different references for different things because there is um in including actually we'll put some stuff in there about uh organizations that can help with things like eating disorders, post yeah. depression, that kind of thing. Um I was involved recently, uh, just introduced a Thames Valley Chamber of Commerce um mental well-being uh group. Uh, webinar which is about um reducing suicide and it's a brilliant yeah. webinar which talks to you about how to have those really good conversations and not to be afraid of them so there's a heap of stuff we're going to put in the show notes um my very final final question which is just one that i ask every, <laughs> every guest um i ask a question that another guest has uh, provided at some point um, Amanda Page, who is someone who um, I've done quite a lot of work with, uh, she's fab and she was a guest ages ago on this podcast, but she provided me with actually a couple of blind questions. So here's um, one for you, Fassi. And I love this question. How do you like to waste your time and why? <laughs> Gosh, me wasting time. Um, that's a tricky one. That's uh, out of procrastination, I take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not procrastinating. <laughs> How do I like wasting my time? I'm trying to think whether I waste my time at all. I I don't think it's a waste. Uh, it's time waster. I sit um, if I can, um, and I absorbed my surroundings and if I can't like on a day like today I will take myself out and sit outside and listen to the birds and look at the grass needs cutting drastically um, and look and think I've got loads of things to do but this moment is more precious than than anything else and I think if you've asked me 20 years time, I will have said, I will go, I, I love going to the cinema, which, and I love going to the cinema. Um, 
and I love going to the theatre. But today, it, nowadays, if I have any time, I just see it and I appreciate. I think gratitude is part of my toolbox, you know, being grateful. Gratitude is key because by being grateful, you realise how happy you can be. Again, there's a correlation there. So I see it, I absorbed um, I'm grateful and I move on and, and I'm able, but not many people know that I actually do that because everyone thinks that I'm always at a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> but that is such a brilliant, brilliant answer. I love that because <laughs> someone who would think, I'm not really sure if I actually waste my time, but there's times when you're doing nothing. And for me, I was on holiday the last couple of weeks and sitting when the sun was shining, you could do a great big walk or a great big bike ride or something, and then just sit and have a beer or a cup of coffee in the sunshine and just let the wind wash over you and the sunshine and just be and it's just so relaxing it's just and it's that's not a waste of time that's it's just that's a key essential ingredient to my well-being so um so I love your answer plus I love everything you've had to say today you are <laughs> obviously you. I could talk to you for hours and there's so much more we could delve into um we have gone over time today because uh, no, 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 that's fine. People can just pause if they have run out of time listening and then pick it back up. Um, I'm so very grateful for your time because I know how, how busy you are. Um, I have loved the, the range of stuff we've covered. I think regardless of whether you, people are listening for their own benefit, thinking about what can they can do to take more control or thinking about the team that they manage or working in a bigger organization. I think there's something for everyone. So I'm, um, I've loved, I've loved everything you've contributed. Thank, and you. Thank you so much for inviting me. <laughs> oh, pleasure, pleasure. Um, so yes, yeah, take care you and um, you. we'll be in touch again soon. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for joining me on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. What's the one thing you will take away from this conversation to think about or do differently? I'd love you to join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. The link to sign up is in the show notes. I hope this episode has got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to the people you work with and how well you and those around you are engaging and thriving. Let's continue the conversation about the points raised in this episode. Or perhaps you have other questions about employee experience and performance email me at it's time for change connect with me on linkedin or why not pick up the phone i love to walk and talk my details are in the notes before next time please give me a thumbs up on apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and for an extra brownie point leave me a short review let's spread the messages far and wide bye for now